Grace to you and peace, faith family. Let us turn together to Obadiah, to the book of Obadiah. It is in the Old Testament, if you're unfamiliar with that. If you can find the book of Jonah, you can find the book of Obadiah, because it's just to the left. We are now preparing our hearts for what is considered the Advent season here in the church and at Christ the King as we come to this point of the year, this time in the church calendar, in which we look back uh, to the first coming, which is what Advent basically means is the coming of Christ, is the first coming of Jesus, so that in the hopes of looking at his first coming, we can prepare our hearts and minds for his soon, hopefully soon, second coming. And during this time of the year, during this season, we typically go back and we review one of the Old Testament prophets to prepare our hearts for the message of what we would call Christmas. And we're looking into the Old Testament in an effort to grasp the gravity of the nature of what it means for Jesus to come for our redemption, for those who would place their faith in Him and trust in Him. And last week... Uh, we were introduced to the author of this book, obviously the author who is Obadiah, whose name means the servant of Yahweh or the servant of Israel's God. We know the audience uh, because Jeremy spoke about this last week. Not only is the, is the author Obadiah, but the audience is none other than Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, and you can read about this if you would like, in Genesis chapter 25 through 27. Since the womb, Esau has been at odds with his brother Jacob. Jacob would later become known as Israel, and the Israelites and the nation and his lineage and descendants that followed, and the Edomites would be those who would come from the lineage of Esau, all coming from the, uh, Abraham and Isaac, so they're all of that uh, same family. So what happens is, obviously, we've taught, we spoke about this a little bit last week, but to kind of catch us up, Israel is eventually taken captive by the Babylonians. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 25. During this invasion, the Edomites are going to take advantage of Israel when Israel is at her weakest. Israel is weak. She's being taken advantage of. Edom, the Edomites decide... To make, this, uh, to make this an opportunity for them to exploit Israel. If you want to read about this, you can read about this in Ezekiel 35, and you can also read about this in Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. As a matter of fact, I want to turn to the Amos passage, because if you found Obadiah, all you got to do is go left, and it's pretty close. Amos chapter 1 will tell us exactly what uh, these people did. Amos chapter 1, 6 and 9 Amos is going to preach about the, uh, the, um, uh, the judgment upon these people, and he, this is one of his judgments that he gives. Verse 6, it says, Thus said the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it to Edom. So Edom had taken some of the Israelites and they had now used the Israelites instead of helping their quote-unquote brothers from Abraham, they have decided to exploit this. As Israel's being destroyed, and by the way, the reason Israel's being destroyed is because they were under God's judgment. Don't forget that, don't miss that. The reason God's people were being destroyed and being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and by the Babylonians was because they have abandon God. And in this process, Edom sees Israel's judgment rightfully, but they do something unrightfully, and they become arrogant. They become arrogant. And through Obadiah, God comes to Edom to pronounce a future judgment. And what he tells Edom is, I have decided, basically this is what's going on, I have decided to judge Israel through the Babylonians but Edom, you made a wrong assessment of me. If you think my judgment of Israel through the Babylonians gives you the freedom to then treat my people however you want to treat them, I got something coming for you because now my judgment is coming on to you. Because Edom, what you have done to Israel, I will now do to you. We may look at this judgment of Edom and think, 
well, they deserved it. You may look at the judgment of Edom and say, well, you know what, Edom, when you're going to be an arrogant uh, people and you're going to judge the, and you're going to hurt God's people the way you have, then you deserve that judgment. You deserve to come under, come under God's condemnation, under his, well, as we will look at later, his retribution. And oh, brothers and sisters, they do. They do. But beloved, what we're going to see this morning, and we're going to turn the page, what if, what if Edom is a type for us? What if we are deserving of his judgment? For what we are going to see this morning is that God is now going to turn his attention from Edom and he is going to turn his attention to all the nations. Or better said, I would say it like this, as he turns his attention through Edom's example, he is now going into all the nations who exhibit the same type of pride. So what God is going to do is he's saying, look, I've judged Edom rightly, and now all nations, you need to take account, you need to listen up, because what I'm about to do to Edom could be your judgment as well. So we discover a great warning for us. Last week, we saw the day of the Lord for Edom. And this week, we see the day of the Lord for all nations. The day of the Lord for all nations. That is my sermon. That is what I'll be preaching. Obadiah, verses 15 through 21, the remainder of the book. Obadiah, verse 15 through 21. Please read along with me as I share the word of God. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drink on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. And those of Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and King, our Savior, our Father, our Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning to ask for you to meet us here. God, would we not look on the hurts and pains of others? God, I pray that as we even study this word, that we would not look on those hurts and pains of others and in some way exhibit a sort of pride and arrogance so that your judgment would ultimately come upon us. But God, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that we would see ourselves, that we would see your work among Edom, your work among the nations, and that, Father, we would understand what it means to stand under your wrath and your judgment. And that, Father, for those of us who are yours, we would understand what it means also for your Son to bear our wrath on Calvary's cross. And God, I pray that if there is one in here who does not know you, that they would come to know you before it's eternally too late. And I pray, God, that those of us who are your children, that, God, we would trust in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, live holy the way he has called us to live, so that, God, we would be a display and a declaration to the world around us that you offer forgiveness for our sins. You offer grace and mercy. And, God, if they would but accept that they would become your children. But God, if they refuse, that they would understand that they stand under your wrath. So bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine on us. 
for it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. The first thing I want us to see is the judgment's reach. This is verses 15 and 16. The judgment's reach or the extent of God's judgment. Obadiah begins, he says, For the day of the Lord draws near. For the day of the Lord draws near. Now the word for here is indicating for us that it's connected to everything he just said. So what is about to be said relates to what has already been said and what has already been done. This day of the Lord has already been prophesied before. In Joel chapter 2 verse 25. If you want to turn there with me, you're more than welcome to. If not, just hold on and trust that I will read it. In, ver- in chapter 2 verse 25 This is what uh, Joel testifies. He says, Then I will make to you for the years the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. Speaking of that day that God will come, and God will do what He will do to those nations who come against His people. He says the day of the Lord will come as destruction from the Almighty. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. For who? For the day of the Lord draws near on who? All the nations. What God said will be done to Edom is now about to be the foretaste of what He will do to all the nations who, like Edom, will refuse to bow to Him. Just in case Edom may be thinking, Oh well, hey guys, I've got this. i got it covered. I am not part of Israel. I'm not under God's judgment. And you know what? I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be taken care of. God comes and says, oh no, no you won't. Obadiah is pleading, it's an urgent plea from the prophet because he says the day draws near. Why? Why is God going to come against these nations the way he has come against Edom? He says, as you have done, it will be done to you. The day will come when justice will be established and the Lord will intervene in human history. This is what the church, modern day church, doesn't like to talk about. It's the concept of what uh, theologians call divine retribution. That God will divinely repay those people, us people, what we rightly deserve. Psalm 137 verse 8 says, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. And I want you to notice, because this is where we have a bunch of trouble, you think you had trouble with divine retribution, as you have done, it will be done for you, your dealings will return on your own head, what you reap is what you sow, verse 16 is the one we struggle with, because it says, just as you drink on my holy mountain, all the nations will be drunk, will drink continually, they will drink and swallow and become, become as if they have never existed. The very idea that God is going to come and He is going to do what He said He will do. Your dealings will return on your head. Possibly even a quote from Joel himself. The terrifying truth, ladies and gentlemen, that God will hold us accountable. God will hold nations accountable. Why? And He says, because just as you drink on my holy mountain... All the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. What is Obadiah referencing here? He is referencing a wartime victory. 
Because what people will do in this day is after they would win, they would celebrate by going and drinking and then rejoicing and celebrating the revelry of victory and the mocking of those who they have defeated, the desecration of all the things the enemy now comes in and celebrates. Now we've seen this and I've seen this in my own lifetime. I've seen this in my own lifetime where a war, a nations at war will go in and desecrate the other nation because of their victory. Y'all remember the Iraq war for those of you who are alive. The American soldiers went in and they tore down that statue. Y'all remember this vivid memory? They would take that big statue that Saddam Hussein had of himself up in the middle of the colonnade and the soldiers by tank, I think, pulled it all down and destroyed it. That's what's happening. And that's what the people of Edom did. They went on God's holy mountain and they began to drink and they began to celebrate the victory of the Babylonians and they began to celebrate the destruction of God's people. What they are doing here is not desecrating, however, the statue of a tyrant like we did with Saddam Hussein. They are desecrating the very worship of the God of Israel. And you can read in the Bible how Nebuchadnezzar would come in and he would carry away the sacred vessels and how his generations and generations that follow him would come. Read Daniel, how they would take the golden uh, things of God and they would use them in celebration in their own place. Remember the handwriting on the wall? What What was happening there? They were using God's instruments of worship for their own own joy and for their own things that they wanted to do. And and they were mocking the God of Israel. And he says, this will not continue. Joel would write in chapter 3, verse 3, that they cast lots on my people. Listen to Joel 3.3. This is what they were doing, just in case you want to get a picture. What were Nebuchadnezzar and the Edomites? What were they known for? They were casting lots for my people. They were basically selling his people into slavery. What's, what else? He Not only did he say, this is all in Joel 3.3, they had casted lots for my people. They sold a girl for wine that they might drink. They were selling young girls for a drink of wine. And in in the Bible, and and Obadiah comes in, and he said, it is because of this that all the nations will drink continually. You will drink continually because of what you've done to my people. You will drink continually. Oh, but church... What is it they will drink? It says they will drink and swallow and listen, become as if they had never existed. What is it they will drink because they drank? What is it they will drink because they did what was unholy and profane in the word in the in the in the in the sight of God? They will drink the excessive wrath of God. Listen, listen to this. Revelation chapter 18. Speaking of Babylon, by the way, Revelation chapter 18. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive all of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived in sensuality, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I set as a queen, and I am not a widow, I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her 
is strong. The day is coming when all those who drink in celebration opposing God will drink the anger and wrath of God that they oppose to the point that it will be as though they never existed. I need you to hear this. Because later I will invite you to the Lord's table. And I will invite everyone to come and participate in the supper of the, of the Lamb. And I will come and get you to participate in the supper that Christ has provided for us. And for many of you, you are unbelievers in this place. You have not believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're pushing away from the table. And I want you to know, in pushing away from God, in pushing away from the table, what you are under is the divine retribution and wrath of God. I can't soften it. I can't make it any easier. I can't make it palatable to your, to your taste buds. I can't even make it feel right at the moment. You are under the just wrath of God. Woe to you. Woe to all nations who are under the wrath of God. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet quote Amos but I've always said as your pastor that this nation of America needs to be very very careful if we are not under currently under divine judgment we are on the brink of being under divine judgment and when God comes and he provides judgment because we are refusing him he will do what he will do to ensure that judgment will be for, will be foreseen you see church the church is not america america is not the church the church is the church no matter where we are. The nations will fall under the wrath of God. We ought to influence our nation, our country, our county in any way that we can because we know God's wrath is on those who refuse Him and what we ought to be as a people of good news, pulling people out of the fire and taking them from the wrath of God. That ought to be our greatest hope. The picture in our slide, by the way, the picture in our slide that hides behind the frame, that was where the Edomites once lived and thrived. I want the picture to burn in your sight because now it is nothing. The Edomites are nothing. Where is the nation of Edom? Where are they? Gone as though they had never existed. Oh, it's real. And you're saying, well, I didn't come this morning to tell me that, uh, that, the na that you know, to hear a word of wrath. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm about to share with you is going to be something better, but I want you to know that if I don't share this, I'm not sharing the truth. Because look, it's empty. It's void. All of their pride, all of their arrogance, all the things that they thought would provide them protection is gone. It's all gone. They're gone as though they had never existed. The only reason we know they exist is because we have a book telling us they did, and God's fulfillment of that promise came true. We better be careful. As a nation that we live in, we better be careful. And or, or we will become nothing but a relic of what was. I've often been asked, why is the church in such a decline? That's what, I've, that's what I'm asked. Why is the church in such a decline? Why is everything going declining? Well, I would say two things to this. Number one, the church isn't. The church has never been in decline because the true church has always been here. What you're seeing is those people who were never a part of the church leaving or going and finding things that they never wanted. That's why the church is in decline, y'all. Quote, unquote. 
The church has never been in decline. The church will never be in decline. God will rescue the remnant of his people called the church. Our challenge, ladies and gentlemen, is that we come into this place and we begin to understand that that people are under the wrath of God and our nation, quote-unquote, the nation we live in, can very well be under the wrath of God while God's people inside of that nation are being redeemed and rescued. So we're on a divine rescue mission. You see this? Well... That's judgment's reach just in case you were to leave last week and you were to say, hey, you know, Edom's under judgment. That ain't us. We're not Edom. We're all good. No, 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 no. All nations, all nations, God comes in and says, for the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. So that's the judgment's reach. Now let's see the judgment's remnant. Verses 17 and 18. But... But on Mount Zion, notice the word but, that word that distinguishes between the judgment stated and something else to come. But on Mount Zion, what is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the location in which God's presence was to dwell in this day. But it was also the location in which they, were, they would come and they celebrated their victory. Remember that? They would come and they would celebrate. The Edomites, the Babylonians, they would come and they would celebrate the victory. Notice what it says. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And what will those who escape do? And it will be holy. Mount Zion will be made holy again. Here, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about something very important. Now you need to hear me. I've just spoken a very harsh word that some of you are going, I don't like that. Well, listen to me. The day of wrath for some is the day of glory for others. Those who escape are escaping so that they are able to describe and display God's preservation of those who are His. God will rescue. God has a remnant. God will rescue His own people. Church, are you listening to me? I hope you're listening. Because no matter what the nation that you are in, I don't care what nation it is, no matter what the nation you are in goes through the judgment, God will rescue His people. Remember. Remember what Edom thought. Turn with me to verse 14. Remember, Edom said, do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. So Edom thought that they would stand in the fork of the road and they would cut down the fugitives of Israel. They thought they were going to be able to wipe them out. And what does God come in and say? Oh no, despite your attempt, the Lord will preserve his people. On this day, ladies and gentlemen, the place where God dwells, Mount Zion, will be once again holy. And listen, what does it say? It says, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. That's what it says. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Now, the question in this whole passage is not what if Jacob will possess it. It says it will. It's not the possessions. It's whose possessions? Who is the there? Is it Jacob's possessions? So is Israel going to go back and get her own possessions? It could be speaking of Israel's return from the captivity of Babylon, which makes sense if it means that the house of Jacob will possess their Jacob's, their own possessions. They're going to come back and they're going to possess what they possess. But if it means the house of Jacob will possess the possessions of Edom, then it seems to indicate not only will they possess Mount Zion, but they are going to extend beyond even what Jacob originally possessed. And if this is true, then ladies and gentlemen, it's not merely speaking of the day in which Israel comes back and they, they repossess what they have already, what they lost. They're going to come and possess it all. Complete victory. Now, I know that some of you are sitting on the edge of your seat wondering, Pastor, what do you th- which one do you think it is? Well, let me get you off the edge of your seat. I don't want you to fall. I want you to get hurt. 
but it could be either. I believe this is the case that we're talking about referencing the day of complete victory. And the reason I believe that is because of what we're about to see in a moment. And I'll share with that with you. And if I am right, if this is right, if what he is talking about is that Israel is going to come and they are going to now possess Edom's possessions and all the things around it, then we are speaking of a day in which the world and everything in it will be redeemed and restored and made holy. We hear about this a little bit. Turn with me to Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah, chapter 14. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah says in verse 20. And ending the book, uh, ending his prophecy, amazingly. He says, in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. A day of restoration. A day in which God will come and he will restore his people. Returning to Obadiah 18, it says, Then, once things have been restored, the house of Jacob will be a fire. By the way, this is the southern kingdom. And the house of Joseph will be a flame. That's the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdoms have been split. North and south have been split. One will be a fire, one will be a flame. And in other words, the remnant of all God's chosen people will come together under what is now, we had divine retribution, and now we're seeing divine empowerment as a fire and a flame. To do what? What does it mark out? Who will become the stubble? The house of Esau. So what is the chosen remnant of God empowered to do? They will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. Now this is where Esau needs to be frightened. This is where the Edomites need to be frightened. That next passage, did you read it? For the Lord has spoken. In the dime that all the nations will be judged, the house of Esau will be consumed, and Edom will be no more. But God in His grace will rescue those whom He's called His own. So that's judgment's reach. We see the judgment's remnant And lastly, we're going to see the judgment's result. Verses 19 through 21. The result of this judgment is now laid out before us. Here is why I think the reference here is largely larger than merely the people of God regaining their own territory. But I think it's further reaching than this. Those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. Those of the Shephelah which is the Philistine plain. Also the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. These are the territories that were under David and were under Solomon, under one rule and one king. It's all-encompassing. The Negev is to the south in Judah. The Shephelah is the region of the valleys and the hills to the west, which are occupied by the Philistines. The land of the Ephraim and the Samaria are to the north. Gilead is the Transjordan region to the east, south, west, North, east, all way, all areas, all places, God's people will redeem and retake. It's an all-encompassing restoration of God's kingdom. Obadiah is telling us how God's people will sell abroad in all directions. And then he seems to turn back and offer a specific result to Judah. He says in the exiles, the remnant of God's people who were among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, which was located between Tyre and Sidon, the exiles of Jerusalem who were in Shepharad, 
We don't really know where that is, by the way. It says they will possess the cities of the Negev. Now, not to get into geography here deeply, but it's speaking of the day when the exiles of Judah will return and possess the place that God gave them. And the deliverers, the Bible says, will ascend to Mount Zion, which is the location of the presence of God. And what will they do? The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. Judge the mountain of Esau. We've seen this word deliverers before. It's a title given to generals in the book of Judges. Look at Judges chapter 3, verse 9 and, and 15. You can read it there. We also see it used in 2 Kings chapter 13. And then lastly, we see it used in Nehemiah chapter 9. Three times in Judges chapter 3, 2 Kings chapter 13, and in Nehemiah chapter 9. And what is it meaning? That God will raise up those who will be deliverers who will ascend Mount Zion. They will ascend Mount Zion. So here, ladies and gentlemen, the prophet has returned to Mount Zion. It is here upon this mountain that we now discover justice and the place where God will rule and reign. And we would ask, what does that have to do with us? Peter, when he stood before Jesus, he asked, what will be for those who follow him? What are gonna, what's going to happen to those who will follow you, Jesus? And then in Matthew chapter 19, listen to Jesus' response. Peter said to him, verse 27, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What will be there for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we know, based upon the Bible, that Jesus alone has the office of judge. But what seems to happen throughout the writings of the New Testament, it seems to me that we participate in it some way. Those, and let me say we, those who are children and redeemed of God seem to participate in it in some way, somehow, some, some cause. How do I know this? Well, here God says that the, to the, to the uh, apostles, you will sit and you will judge Israel. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church of Corinth. And listen to what he says. Starting in verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare not to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints, who? The saints, the holy ones, the ones who are redeemed by Christ, what will they do? Will judge the world. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? In other words, we will one day judge the world. The saints of God, the believers of God, will one day judge the world. Those who are redeemed in Christ will now join in some way in God's judgment to judge. And the prophet concludes, the prophet concludes this with a beautiful passage of what it ultimately means for us here at Christ the King, who say that we will declare our King and demonstrate a kingdom. It describes a day in which His kingdom has come and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That great day when strife is ended, disobedience of the creature to the creator is dissipated. Prosperity and poverty are no more. For the kingdom is the Lord's. No longer will there be any false worship as it has been throughout the history of humanity. A day that the kingdom of Christ will be exclusive. 
a day in which Daniel talks about. Listen. Daniel chapter 7, listen to what Daniel says. Daniel 7, 14. We'll start in verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And listen, here it is, verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Later, this day will be revealed to, the, to John in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. When it says, And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. And He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Beloved, we have seen judgments reach. We have been told of judgment's remnant. And now we see judgment's result. And beloved, we live in a day of great tribulation, no doubt. A day filled with strife and tears and pain and suffering and sickness. But we also live in a day that God takes the souls of man and breathes into life through the Spirit and frees us from the bondage of sin and Satan so that we may know Him and find our greatest satisfaction in Him so that in turn we would declare him as our king and display his kingdom. A kingdom in which God reigns by his grace so that we may manifest him to the world in the midst of all the brokenness. Because church, we know that the day is coming when God will restore his kingdom in the new Jerusalem with his remnant of faithful believers. And you see in this little book, the smallest of all the prophets of Obadiah. We see through the Edomites, those who are filled with pride and betray the very reality of the present and real human condition. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Edom is a picture of all humanity. As a matter of fact, I want you to do this. I want you to go look at the letters that spell Edom in Hebrew. Do you know that the letters that spell Edom in Hebrew also spell Adam or Adam? You see, Edom is a type for all of those who are in Adam. And if you, ladies and gentlemen, are in Adam, you will experience the wrath of God. Because in Edom, we get a picture for all of humanity. The day is coming when God will deal with evil in our world. And it's a day in which we will also bring about the healing of the kingdom of peace. For the day of wrath for one is a day of glory for another. When? When? When is God going to come and bring His kingdom of peace? And when is He going to come and bring His kingdom in wrath? And see, this is where me and you sit. Because in one sense, it has already come. Because church, you are either in Christ or you are in Adam. You can't be in both 
and you can't be in neither. It is either one or the other. If you are in Adam, you are in your sin. If you are in Christ, you are redeemed. If you are in Adam, you are under the covenant of works, which means we have been defeated, we have failed, we have not provided the, uh, the perfect life that we ought to be given. We are in sin. And if you are in Christ, He has come and He has paid our debt for us. Who are you in? Where do you belong? And see, right now, I want you to know, in one sense, the kingdom has already come. Jesus said, repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. So the kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen, has been inaugurated for us in Christ. Who alone, we, remember I told you, in Edom, in Adam, you endure the wrath of God. But in Christ, He endured the wrath for you. That's why you are no longer in, 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 in Adam. You are in Christ because Christ came and endured the wrath of God on the cross for those who would proclaim Him as Lord. So in one sense, the kingdom of heaven is already here. It's inaugurated. For Christ has endured the wrath of God that all of us who deserve His wrath but yet Christ has come and provided us the promise of salvation, the promise of eternal inheritance, so that we would be glorified by those who are His. So that He would be glorified by those who are His, excuse me. So in one sense, it's already here. But in another sense, it's not here yet. For although the kingdom has been inaugurated, it is yet to be completed. See, we live in the midst of the already and the not yet. The king has already revealed himself. The king has already provided salvation for those who would trust in him. But the king, the Bible says, ascended into heaven and he has promised his return so that we could see as many saved until that day when all things will be made new. Ah, and here we sit in 2023 on the brink of a new year and we find ourselves squarely in the center of the story of an Old Testament prophet. I've sat with many a men who are assured of their salvation because they know Jesus. And when I sit and I begin to talk to them about this truth, and I ask them, what do you mean you know Jesus? What does it mean to know Jesus? And as I have shared with you on many of occasions, I can't get into Buckingham Palace because I know the king. I can only get into Buckingham Palace if the king knows me. I need you to hear me because I am trying to save you from the wrath to come. I am to I'm trying to save you from judgment. I'm trying to save you from the wrath that I was due. I am due the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God. For I was an Adam and a sinner. I'm not asking, do you know about Jesus? I'm not asking, have you been to Bible study? I'm not asking, have you been to Sunday school? I'm not asking, have you been to missional community? I'm not asking if you're a member of the church. I'm not asking if you tithe. I'm not asking if you pray. I'm not asking if you give. I'm not asking you any of that. Because if you think your works are going to save you, Adam did too. And it didn't. Adam demonstrates for us that we would be unable to save ourselves. We needed a Redeemer. Are you an Adam? Or has the King of kings and Lord of lords revealed himself to you and he knows you to the point to where now you can say you know him? Are you in Christ or you're in Adam? There is, no, there is no fence. And if you think there is a fence, the devil owns it. Because offenses of this world, there are no fences in heaven. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ is the simple question. It's not a hard one. 
But it's a hard one. Will you please stand to your feet if you're capable? We are now coming to the point where we respond to this message. And if you are in here this morning and you are in Christ, then come, rejoice, celebrate with me that, I have, that you have been rescued from the wrath of God by Christ Himself and come and participate in the elements of the Lord's Supper, reminding us that we are not saved because of our works. We're saved because of His works. We're saved because of the body and the blood that He shed on Calvary's cross. So if you are a believer this morning, come, participate, have joy for crying out loud. Be grateful for the fact that you are redeemed, you are a part of His people, and that He will one day come and restore. He hasn't forgotten us. He doesn't. It's not like God is going, oh, I wonder where my kids are. He knows where we are. He knows what we're going through. He knows exactly what's happening, and yet He has decided for us to be here to declare Him and to demonstrate Him. Aren't you grateful? Oh, but if you're here and you're not in Christ, I'm here to tell you you're an Adam. And because you're an Adam, you are, you are due the wrath of God. And let the picture of Esau and Edom come as a stern woe and warning. But I don't know when that day will come. I don't know when my day will come, when I will stand before the Lord and give an account. But I know this old boy, when he stands before his God, the only true God of this world, the only thing I have to plead is the blood of righteousness of Christ on me. Because if you think you're going to get by by your works, I'm here to tell you, you're already guilty. Father, Sometimes we look at these passages and we wonder, why the harshness, Pastor? Why do you come so hard? God, it is my hope that the darkness, the darkest of darknesses of your wrath that we have just seen in the, in the truth of Obadiah will only help us to see the beauty of the brightness of all that you've done for us in this season that we call Christmas. That God, next week we will start to look at your promises even from the beginning. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis and see how Christmas is seen there. But God, going all the way back to Christmas in Genesis, I want us to sit back and realize that the reason that we celebrate your coming in the beginning is because we see the darkness, but now we have seen the light. And that God, yes, these are hard words. These are hard truths. But God, hard truths and hard words doesn't no more remove the fact as, as, as my feelings. For if it is true, it is true. So God, it is my prayer now, even in this moment, that as we sit here before you, that each of us as God's people will take a moment in quiet reflection, humbling ourselves before our mighty God and King who although we deserve his wrath, we have been given grace. We'll prepare our hearts now for the Lord's table so that we don't come and enter into an unworthy manner. And God, if now there in this room be any sin among your people that we'd repent and rebuke all of Satan's ploys and pleas so that we can come to this table in an unworthy manner. God, I would pray that now you will be with your people as we sit in quiet reflection and may your Holy Spirit do the work that only it can do. Let us pray.